everybody. Welcome into the I Want to Know podcast. I am your host, Greg Jones, and I'm the one leading you on this inquisitive departure into audio wisdom. Hey, today is part two with my interview with Jeff Bearden. Thank you guys for uh, for all the feedback so far. A lot of wrestling fans have gotten in touch, and it's nice to talk a little wrestling every now and then. I know you non-fans are probably laughing at me right now, but hey, nothing wrong with a little wrestling in your life, especially old school wrestling back when it was good. Speaking of good, I don't want to waste too much time before we get back into Jeff Bearden. I will remind you guys, though, that if you're in Vegas, January 2nd, he's one of the keynote speakers at the Unstuck 2016 Happiness Conference at the Orleans Casino. Check him out there. You can find out more on his Facebook, facebook.com slash the Get Back on Your Feet guy or jeffbearden.com. You can also tweet him, JWB at large on Twitter. So back to the interview and back to Jeff talking about wrestling in South Africa. So yeah, South Africa could be a real rough place to to work because everybody liked to fight. I, you know, I had guns pointed at me over there. You know, after the first thing with Gama, the office, um, you know, he said he had over 80 death threats that if I showed up, they were going to kill me. Oh, geez. And so we didn't even run the next weekend. We were supposed to run because he was afraid somebody was actually going to try to kill me. That's and I was insane. mad because I'm like, this place is going to be sold out. Let's run. <laughs> and he's like, no, I'm not taking a chance on somebody killing you. That's the wrestling so mentality. That show. <laughs> That's hilarious. So, yeah, I've had some fun times with crowds. Apparently, you, <laughs> you had some insane run-ins. Uh, you did mention that you worked with Yokozuna. What was that guy like? Yeah, Rodney is the best person that I've ever met in my life. Uh, you know, Rod and I were, were very close. And, I mean, he was we were tag team partners in Mexico for a couple of years. Oh, geez. And then um, I was actually the one that found him when he died. Wow. So, you know, we were on tour in England, and he had called me to come on the tour with him. We just got off of a tour in Saudi Arabia together. Uh-huh. So we had just come off of a long like five day run in southern England and you know he was tired and had been up drinking and stuff all night the night before um, you know he and it was actually the night I think when um, Rikishi did the big thing off of the cage into a truck or something jeez was the night that it happened. I think he may have been working with Undertaker or somebody. Uh-huh. I remember that. And um, I think there was something about him driving a car that was supposed to try to kill Austin or some crazy angle WWE was doing and stuff, but he ended up taking <laughs> some big bump off the top of a cage or something through a, into a truck. Okay. I guess Rodney had called him after the match and told him a good match and ordered a movie. And, you know, he, he just went to sleep. And that was it. And that was and that was how we found him and stuff was with the, the sheets pulled up and so I was the one who had to you know, call the family and tell everybody what had happened and Wow. Uh, um you know, help get him taken care of as far as all the stuff with the medical examiner and the police. You know, his sister had flown out to so I had to help her get everything sorted out to get him home. Yeah. So I mean it's you know, still something that, you know, 15 years later and stuff, I still remember. Yeah. So sad. It, it was reported that not only was he one of the nicest guys, but it, apparently he was quite the, the ladies' man. Is that true? 
I don't know about that. I don't know <laughs> that, uh, that I ever really saw him with with anybody. I mean, I knew he had a girlfriend and stuff at the time, and I had known his wife, him and his wife, when I first started in like Pensacola. You know, I remember him having one of his kids on his bag as he was dragging his bag through the arena and stuff on the way home one night. <laughs> and that was always such a touching scene. And, you know, after all of this had happened and stuff, I had, I wrote letters and stuff to both of the kid, both of his kids, you know, just, you know, telling them what, what a wonderful guy and stuff their dad was. Cause I mean, I think they were just young teenagers at the time or something when he passed and stuff. So I just sent both of them a letter and stuff to, you know, just to tell them and stuff what a great dad they had. Yeah. Yeah, so sad. It's it's hard. I mean, so many, obviously people die, but I mean, it seems like the wrestling business has a lot more deaths than, you know, need to be. God, it sure seems like it. I mean, it's, you know, I've gone through and, you know, go through my phone book and it's just like, God, this person's gone and this person's gone. And, it's, you know, I get to looking through my phone book sometimes. It's just like, wow. You know, I've got so many numbers of guys that have passed. Yeah. And it's just it's just really a sad thing. And I think a lot of it is, you know, our schedule and stuff. For us to make money, we've got to work. Of course. And, you know, with the wrestling business, it's not like professional football or basketball or baseball. You know, we don't have a season. Right. You know, so, I mean, it's, you know, it it's runs 365 days a year. And, you know, everybody wants to get as many of those days as they possibly can. You know, WWE works their guys into the ground. Yeah, and they have contracts. And they've got contracts. Yeah. I mean, when you're, you know, when you're living from tour to tour, you know, you're, you're trying to get on as many tours and as many bookings as you can possibly get. And I, I just think that the schedule and, you know, like for me and stuff being uh, – you know, working predominantly international shows, the travel schedule on top of going into foreign countries and everything else. I mean, there were times that I would do a show in one country, you know, fly in that morning, do a show that night, fly out the next morning to go somewhere else. Yeah, I imagine. And so, you know, it was just a really grueling schedule. And, you know, then the, you know, there's so much temptation out there. Oh, of course. You know, which makes it really hard. And I mean, the the alcohol and the drugs and, you know, guys are taking painkillers to, to get through matches and muscle relaxers at night to relax and sleeping pills. And then the cocaine comes in so they can party more and the steroids and, you know, so much of that stuff is out there. And I mean, the, you know, the mentality starts coming. If, you know, if a little bit does this for me, how much more, you know, if I do more, it'll do even more. Yeah. And, you know, that's not necessarily the case, but, you know, and it, it just turns into addiction. And I think that's where a lot of this, you know, a lot of it happens. I think a lot of guys get depressed from, you know, especially when they were on top and they were the big headliners and stuff to where now they're kind of looked at as, you know, a, a legend, but they're not really at where they were 15 years ago. Right. Did you ever get into any of that sort of stuff? Um, I did. Uh, you know, when I first got into wrestling, it was, um, 
you know, I got into alcohol because, you know, everybody was drinking and that was kind of the way that you fit in was, you know, the more you could drink, the more you fit in with that crowd. Sure. Um, you know, it wasn't uncommon stuff to pick up a case of beer and stuff when I was traveling with Dick. Right. Um, you know, so, I mean, I, I developed a little bit of an alcohol problem and stopped. Um, and then a few years later when I was living in South Africa and it wasn't because of wrestling, but, you know, I had gotten involved with cocaine, uh, for a couple of years and stuff and, and, you know, quit that. So that's, you know, two aspects that I always touch base with when I'm, you know, at schools talking to kids. Yeah. You know, I've always been very, very honest and stuff on, you know, anything I talk to and stuff about the fact that, yeah, I had addiction problems in life, uh, you know, I got down and depressed at one point when I first started wrestling, you know, being sore and alone and everybody, you know, having problems with the the wife and missing my kids and everything else that, you know, I had a night that I was very suicidal and almost committed suicide. And, you know, so those are things that I always touch base with kids and stuff on. Yeah. How, you know, you're retired now. How is your body after all those years of bumping? Beat the hell. <laughs> Um, you know, thankfully I'm not some guy like a Ray Mysterio or, or Chris Jericho or some of those guys and stuff that had to bump their asses off for a little. Yeah, Shawn Michaels. Yeah, Shawn. You know, thankfully instead of being as big as I was, I didn't have to take some of the bumps and stuff that those guys took. Yeah. But at the same time, when I took big bumps, that was a lot of weight to be throwing around. And I mean, I wasn't necessarily all that bashful. You know, I let people superplex me and you know i've gone through from the you know from the ring apron through tables and stuff on the floor and things like that so i mean i didn't shy away from bombs right um you know i've had <clears throat> probably i think i've had six or seven surgeries in the last three years um you know i had my neck is completely reconstructed so that's why i was saying earlier and you know that it, I can't swear that I'm seven foot today because I'm, I'm fused <laughs> from my C4 to T1. Wow. In my neck. So it's been completely restructured and it's completely torn up. Yeah. And that wasn't necessarily from the wrestling. I got hurt in a work-related incident. But, you know, how weak was it going into that situation? Right. Just made it worse. You know, from all the chair shots. Because I took a lot of chair shots and stuff over the years and stuff too because that was – you know, the, the best way to bring down a big guy. Oh, of course. You know, you know, forearms and chops and punches weren't necessarily going to do it, but if I whack him with a chair two or three times, he'll go down. So, you know, I, I went through a lot of those. and You know, I just had a knee replacement done about nine months ago, and, um, you know, I've had like 11 knee surgeries in my life, and I had a rotator cuff done about three years ago. So, I mean, it's... You know, I've definitely had my wear and tear on my body and stuff. It's not going to be like your average person that that's never done it. Right. Played sports and stuff. I'm, you know, I definitely wake up in the mornings and I feel it. You know, I always tell doctors and stuff. I usually start my my average day. I start off at about a five or six on the pain scale. And I'll have to get the other knee done eventually and pro- possibly a hip. So when you were taking those chair shots, I mean, you were taking them straight to the head. There was no putting the hands up. No, I <laughs> I took unprotected shots, which. You know, looking at it now, it's probably stupid of me, but, you know, it, 
it was just the way it was and stuff back then. We wanted it all to look real, and I came in old school. Yeah, it was part of protecting the business. Yeah, I mean, you didn't, you know, you trusted the guy that was hitting you with a chair knew what he was doing. Right. And, I mean, I got knocked out a couple. of Scott Hall knocked me out one night with a, with a plastic chair. Oh, jeez. So, you know, I took some, some big shots with chairs and things like that. So, had a few concussions and stuff because of, you know, those and... You know, doing the cowboy gimmick, I worked a lot of bull rope matches at one time. And, you know, so getting hit with that bell. Yeah, that'll you know, knock that, you around. That jars you pretty good. <laughs> I bet. Um, did you ever, you know, at that time, we're talking a lot about protecting the business. Did you ever get any fights outside of the ring in, in protection of the business? Um, not really. You know, I mean, it's. I think, you know, my, my size and stuff was always a deterrent from that. Sure. You know, you always hear about the little guy that goes into the bar, and I'm going to whoop the biggest guy's ass in the bar. <laughs> but that was usually capped off at about 6'4 or 6'5. You know, <laughs> I wasn't really the one that they were looking for when they said that. They weren't planning on me being. There. Right. So, I mean, usually that was reserved for guys that were 6'4 or 6'5 and big. Yeah. You had that height advantage. You know, looking for giants and stuff. Probably wasn't what they had in mind when they said that. No, no. You take the night off at that point. Yeah, it's like, mm, I'll think about this one. We'll try it another night. Yeah. Um, you know, people think wrestling, you know, Americans think wrestling is wrestling. It's what you see in WWE and TNA and whoever else. You know, what Japan is, is famous for their kind of strong style. Oh, yeah. You know, what are, what are some of the differences between the wrestling in, in different countries? You know, with... With the American-style wrestling, you know, we always, we're trained to land flat. So it disperses the energy, you know, of a bump and stuff out over the whole body so it didn't jar you as much. Um, You know, if you watch the Lucha-style wrestling, a lot of their stuff is very acrobatic. They roll through a lot of things. Yeah. Um, They also don't see You know, a lot of their stuff is flying and catching and things like that. So it took me a little while to get used to that because I worked a lot in Mexico. Yeah. So I, w- I was very familiar with the Lucha style wrestling. So it was um, working their style was a little bit different. And it was, it was hard for me. And I know Rodney said the same thing sometimes when we were working down there. Their rings were so solid. Oh, yeah. And there were a lot of times that we were doing wrestling matches and boxing rings where they've got a solid post in the middle so the ring doesn't give. Yeah, boxing rings don't need to bounce. Yeah, so, I mean, we're working in these kind of rings and stuff, and, I mean, you know, Rod always used to do those, that big leg drop of his. Right. But there were some nights he'd look at me, and I could tell stuff he hit on that ring and stuff, and it just jarred him. <laughs> and, you know, I used to do a big leg drop and stuff, too, and that kind of took its toll of doing those kind of, you know, you kind of had to work around doing those kind of bumps because, you know, I used to do the one where I would squat down over the guy and jump up as high as I could and then flatten out and do the leg drop. Oh, okay. Or when your tailbone hits hits that middle post in the middle of the ring, boy, it jars you all the way up your ears. That's when you start giving those, leg and, those Hogan leg drops. Oh, yeah. <laughs> where there's not just a whole lot of height to those things. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, that was a different style of wrestling, working the Lucha style. Like I said, for them, so they did a lot of acrobatic stuff. We did what we were trained. So, but thankfully and stuff, you know, Rod and I both and stuff were so big, we didn't have to really bump a whole lot. Yeah. 
you know, they would always throw us together or something, you know, so we'd bump off each other so we could kind of roll into those. <laughs> so what was your favorite uh, country to wrestle in? South Africa. Because the style, because the crowd? or I love the, I love the crowd. You know, the crowd over there and stuff was such a – South Africa, I really love the country itself. I mean, I lived there. I, I toured over there two or three times a year for three years. And I lived there for five. Um, while I was there and stuff, I also did bodyguarding and and uh, I ran a security company and stuff, running bouncers and nightclubs and stuff like that too. So I wasn't just wrestling while I was living in South Africa. But I, I really just love the country. I love the people. I love the culture. You know, I watched it go through a lot of stuff because I started going there when it was apartheid. Uh, I was living. I was living there when Mandela got elected. Um, I actually bodyguarded for Mandela's granddaughter. Really, the times. Wow. Um, you know, I went back out in 2010 with my wife before we got married, and I was out there for six months doing security work for World Cup soccer when oh, they geez. did the World Cup out there. Yeah. So. You know, and I worked with a lot of celebrities and stuff on the bodyguarding, Tina Turner, Elton John, you know, people like that. And so, but I really just love South Africa. I mean, it was always my home away from home, and I always looked forward to when I would get booked to go out there. But, uh, yeah, South Africa would definitely be, by far, be my favorite place. And it was, and the fans were just amazing. Yeah. You know, I, I loved Puerto Rico, too. So, you know, they've got some crazy fans and stuff that are you know, that are just amazing to work with, too, because they were hot for everything at the time. Um, Japan, the first time I went over there was kind of different, you know, because their crowd and stuff, you, we're so used to the American style of things. And, like, I, I was coming out of Puerto Rico to where sometimes you could sneeze and the crowd would go nuts. <laughs> there, you're doing things and stuff like that. There's just no reaction from the crowd. Right. It's not a reason. Then all of a sudden you do a big move and you get the, Ooh, and they clap and they stop. <laughs> it goes back to dead silence again. And that was just the craziest thing in the world. It took me forever to get used to that. Because, you know, we were so used to working off of the people and you really didn't have any emotion from them to work off of. Right. So it was very difficult for me the first time I went over there. And you're right. So their, their style and stuff, that strong style is tough. You know, because everything is a lot more solid. Everything's laid in a lot more. Um, People are losing eyeballs. Yeah. Later. <laughs> yeah. Well, I worked with Stan, so I understand. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Stan's the one that knocked it out of him, right? Yeah. Yeah, Stan was Stan was something else. Not only was Stan stiff, but, you know, Stan couldn't see very well. <laughs> you know, without, without his glasses on, so, boy. I'd watch, you know, and a lot of times their chairs would be connected. So you, you watch Stan pick up a chair and you think, oh, God, this is going to hurt. Oh, geez. Then you realize he's picking up a chair and there's two more connected to it. <laughs> it's like now I'm fixing to get hit with a section of chairs. This is really going to hurt. <laughs> Getting hit with aisle two. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, working with Stan was, you know, Steve Williams was another one. You know, Steve was always very snug to work with. And he was so strong. Yeah. You know, he, he snatched me up and suplexed me one night. And, I mean, I didn't help, help at all. Jeez. And, I mean, at that time, stuff, I was 300 pounds. And it's just like he picked me up and threw me around like a rag doll. Because he got mad at my partner at a spot that he had botched during the match. Uh oh And so when he tagged out, I stepped in not knowing what I was walking in on. <laughs> 
and Steve was mad and frustrated and just grabbed the first person who he could see, which happened to be me, and here we go. Jeez. And that I guy, never even boosted for nothing. <laughs> and that guy was a shoot fighter. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah, Steve wasn't somebody you wanted to play around with so yeah. he could hurt you. Yeah. Well, and uh, Stan Hansen, that, that lariat was always pretty rough looking. Yeah, I, I I learned real quick and stuff. When Stan got ready to throw that thing, he always had a tendency to throw it a little bit high. So I'd always get up on my toe right before he threw it, <laughs> so it would hit in the right spot. But but the first time he threw it, I didn't do that, and he caught me like right in the chin, chin mouth, and I thought, oh. Geez. So next time and stuff, I'm working with him. He's catching the lariat on me. I got up on my toe before he threw that thing and stuff, so it didn't take my teeth out. Shouldn't uh, shouldn't he be throwing that pretty good then at a seven footer? If he's throwing oh, high, yeah, but he compensated. <laughs> you know, he's like, oh, this guy's tall. I mean, you know, like I said, his his depth perception, I think, and stuff because you know he couldn't see all that well with his glasses. Jeez, you know, I, I think that really <laughs> kind of played into to where his art ta- target was just off a little bit. <laughs> Just enough. But, you know, I really like Stan. I mean, Stan always tried to, you know, I used to always sit behind Stan on the bus, so Stan would always kind of give me some pointers and talk to me. And, you know, he was another, you know, guy from Amarillo and stuff from West Texas State. So, you know, we had that kind of a background and stuff from being from the panhandle together. So, yeah, you know, we always we always got along on the – tours and i mean he'd always give me such a hard time about being green and young and you know which he was absolutely correct on i was it was right. you know my first time to start working with a lot of these big name guys like you know because i went over on the tag team tournament okay so i mean it was joel deaton dick slater doug furnace doc and terry abdul and kamala number two dorian terry funk Jeez. johnny ace i mean you know, it was a who's who of wrestling. You know, Jumbo Taruta was still alive. Um, you know, so all of those guys were just amazing talent. You know, Kabashi was just getting started. Oh, okay. Wow. You know, I worked with um, Mazawa in Kawada. Now, if you wanted to watch a brutal match, watch Kawada work with Stan. Oh, really? Oh, those two. Jeez, <laughs> man! There were some chops and forearms and clotheslines and stuff that were laid. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, you you mentioned for a second coming through Memphis for a while. I mean, everybody knows Jerry Lawler came through Memphis. <laughs> um, I think Undertaker came through. I mean, Jerry Lawler was Memphis. I think Undertaker came through Memphis. Um, yeah, Scott Hall possibly came through Memphis. Uh, I think he did at one time. I think Scott really got his big start with AWA. Okay. But now Undertaker and I played college basketball against each other. Really? So I'd known Mark since we were in college. That's crazy. And so um, Lawler brought me in to do this crazy zombie gimmick. (laughs) Of course. And, like, I love to give Mark a hard time about it when I see him. But they bring me in to do this this zombie character. And I've got this rubber Halloween mask and... (laughs) You know, Lawler's doing my makeup because Lawler's a hell of an artist. Oh, yeah. And so he's doing my makeup on my hands and arms and stuff, you know, so I look more zombie-like. And I've got this cape, you know, with a cowl and everything and stuff on it and sweats and old boots. And, 
you know, so now tell me if this gimmick sounds a little bit familiar. I'm being brought down in the Mid-South Coliseum in a hearse and wheeled to the <laughs> ring in a casket. Sounds familiar. Uh, and so they would throw the, and funny enough, my manager's name was The Undertaker. Oh, geez. So he would kind of massage my heart and stuff to wake me up. I'd get out of my casket and I would have my match with Freddy Krueger. <laughs> which was Tommy Gilbert. Okay. And so we would do our match, and then I would get back in my casket, and they'd wheel me away. So we're sitting in the dressing room, and Mark was doing, I think, Master of Pain was what his gimmick was in Memphis. Okay. And so Dutch Mantell was the booker, and Dutch had called me. I'd known Dutch when I was starting with, with Crockett because he was tagging with Bobby Jaggers at the time doing the Jayhawk gimmick. And... um so I was asking Dutch, you know, where does everybody stay? He said, well, we all stay in, in Nashville. So I said, well, where's a good place that's pretty cheap for me to stay? And Undertaker said, well, hey, if you don't mind sleeping on the couch, you can stay with me. So at the time, we hadn't recognized each other yet. Because we both changed a lot since we were playing basketball in college. Sure. Sure you feel that so, a lot. The next morning when we get out, he comes out with a pair of Texas Wesleyan sweatpants. And so I questioned him, I'm like, where in the world? He said, no, this is where I played basketball. And I'm like, you're Mark Calloway. <laughs> and then his, I said, I played at McMartin. And then he re- realized who I was and stuff. So then it was just, you know, then it was just fun and stuff. And I stayed with him for a couple of weeks. That's awesome. But... You know, if when I see him and stuff, I'll give him a hard time sometimes about, you know, I, I should be getting royalties off of the, you know, you're, you basically stole my gimmick. That's right. You're the original <laughs> Undertaker. <laughs> All you needed was the urn and the small guy with a high-pitched voice. Yeah, I just, I had a guy about the size of Percy that was doing the uh, gimmick who had on a rubber Halloween mask, too. So it was, it was just really a comical, interesting gimmick that I did. Did you ever know Percy or Paul Bearer to the rest of you? Uh, yeah, when he was doing Percy Pringle in Dallas. Oh, okay. Way back when. Yeah. Very cool. That's hilarious. Did you ever get approached by Vince or by whoever was running WCW um, at the time or any of those guys? You know, they were just – and there it goes back to me saying as if I was never in the right place at the right time. Right. You know, I, I've missed a couple of those um, opportunities in life of just – think should have zigged when they zagged. Um, I had just gone in and done my first uh, dark match and stuff with, with WWE. It was still WWF then. Yeah. This would have been like 94, I guess, 93. Okay. And so Sergeant Slaughter was, the guy, you know, who I was working with on that one and stuff about trying to come in. They had just brought in Giant Gonzalez. He was awful. <laughs> Oh my gosh! Yeah, so needless to say, I give Mark a hard time about all the guys he got saddled with trying to make look good. Seriously, and if he did. He made a lot of those guys and stuff that had no business being in the ring with him look as good as he possibly could. Yeah, yeah, he's a hero to those guys. But um, yeah, I just done my first tryout with them, um, and then I got offered the chance to come to South Africa and help run the office. Oh. So nothing was, you know, I wasn't getting a lot of feedback from WWE 
because uh, I just had that one match. Right. And so, you know, the deal came up with South Africa, and I, you know, I'd already been going over there for about three years, and I just really loved it. And so, you know, I'd gone and done a tour in India, I think, and came home. I got the offer from South Africa, and I just stayed. And it really kind of took me off of the radar from WWE. And, I mean, I remember coming home from South Africa because I lived there for five years and never came home. Oh, geez. And um, when I did, I went I went to go do an indie show in Houston, I think. And somebody said, are you still alive? He said, I heard you died in a car wreck in South Africa. <laughs> well, I'm here. So, I mean, I guess there was a rumor at some point in time about me involved in some kind of a car wreck in South Africa where I died. So I don't know if that took me off of the radar. Or... I guess the more accurate rumor would have been that you got stabbed to death. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. Which wasn't far off of the case sometimes. Right. Sounds but like it. Uh, WWE had come out to, it was doing the security work that I was doing. And so we worked for a company called Big Concerts. So we did all the concerts that came in. Okay. So that's where we got the, the Whitney Houstons and Tina Turners and all of that stuff. And they called one day and said, hey, there's this big group of ra- this wrestling company from the States wants to come out and do a big wrestling tour. Would y'all be interested in, in doing the security for them? And so, you know, my boss looked over at me and stuff because, you know, I was in the office with him. And he said, let me ask real quick. He said, hey, do you feel like running around with a bunch of your old friends for a week? <laughs> and get paid for it. And I'm like, sure. Might as well. So, you know, I got to talk, you know, so I got to reconnect with, you know, Rodney had just started doing the Yokozuna gimmick. And so I got to reconnect with him and Owen and some of the other guys. And so, uh, they did come to South Africa in the late nineties and stuff. And I worked a couple of shows with them over there. Um, but you know, I don't know if it was because I was living in South Africa that, Cornette was the one that called me at that time. And I wasn't real happy with the way they treated me oh. there. Because I did the one match and stuff, and I worked with D'Lo Brown. Okay. And I think D'Lo was still kind of pretty green at the time. Yeah. And he kind of botched a spot that caused us to just tumble. Oh, jeez. You know, it wasn't even a salvageable thing. We both just <laughs> fell across the ring. And I've got Goulet and stuff at the ringside, so I've given us a signal, you know, sign to go home. And this is like, you know, they were wanting me to put D'Lo over, which I didn't have a problem with doing. But, you know, you've got to remember at this time and stuff, I was a very strong heel in South Africa. Right. You know, so, I mean, but I was hoping to get it, you know. I've never been really one that balked on a lot of finishes. I may suggest a different idea or something but you know this was their show so i was doing what they wanted me to do and hoping that was going to get me in with them and so i agreed to do it well there's goulet and stuff at probably two minutes into the match and i'm having to do a job for d-lo jeez and so you know rather than give us a chance to try to correct this because the finish was kind of set up to where it could it wasn't going to make me look too bad to the South African fans. Sure. So I wasn't going to steal my heat. Yeah. Um, but when they had me get beat in two minutes, and I'm like the world champion, 
that kind of kills it. Yeah. So, I mean, at that point and stuff, I had to take a few months off and kind of reinvented myself. And that's when I came back as Tiger Steel. Oh, okay. From doing the Giant Warrior gimmick. Interesting. So I, I kind of had to do that to kind of give people time for me to be gone. Yeah. Forget that awful match with Kilo. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there were 17,000 people there. So right, I mean, of course. That was a lot, you know, bigger than houses than what we were drawing, which meant that most of the people there were the people that were coming to our shows. So, yeah. Probably you know, how was I beating their local South African heroes and stuff when some guy half my size comes in and beats me in two minutes? Yeah. That's not you know, good. so I wasn't real happy about it, and I'm sure I probably mumbled something under my breath in the dressing room. It may have got back to the office, may not have, may just been the fact that I was living in South Africa and had a bad match. And that's what took me off of the radar at that point, you know, at that time. And then I was working for Sean when I moved back to the States because, you know, Sean had his own little promotion going in San Antonio for a little while. Right, while he had his school going. Yeah. So I was working for Sean, and so Sean tried to talk to him. And by then, you know, I was 36. Yeah. And, you know, they felt like I was too old <laughs> to be coming in. My gosh, and stuff, you know, when back in the 80s, the guys that started making money didn't start making money until they were about 35. Right. Try telling Ric Flair he's too old. Yeah. You know, <laughs> Flair and Dusty and stuff were doing all the stuff that they were doing, and they were 40. Right. You know, when they started doing all their stuff. So, I mean... You know, and I, I don't know stuff. I I had a run in when I was with Global with Bruce Pritchard, and I don't know if that had anything because Bruce was kind of helping with the bringing the new talents with talent relations and stuff at the time too. Right. Yeah, he had a big and, part of that. And so he was. I don't even remember what the situation was, but there was something to where we kind of butted heads and stuff at Global. No. When Eddie Gilbert was the booker, and I think Bruce was just helping him with stuff. I think he'd stopped doing the brother love gimmick and was doing some other crazy thing, the expert or something like <laughs> that with 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 Gilbert and stuff on that one. And I didn't, I, I don't remember exactly what it was, but I remember we kind of butted heads a little bit. But I didn't think it was anything major. So I don't know if it was just a, you know a situation of me just never being in the right time, right place, the right time. Yeah. Did but you, I enjoyed my overseas stuff, so, I mean, I can't really, you know, always tell people stuff. I, I don't regret, you know, there's some things in my life I wished I hadn't have done. Sure. But at the same time, I don't regret anything because it's got me to where, it, where I am today. Yeah. Did you have a favorite opponent? Opponent. Always loved working with Abdullah. Yeah, just easy to work you with. Know, Abby was just, he was always just so much fun, and it was, uh you know, always, always such a pleasure to work with Abby, and I got to work with him in Japan some, as well as is Puerto Rico. Um, you know, I don't know if you remember Lance von Eric when they had the they had the run of I guess David had died in World Class, okay, and then Mike got the toxic shock syndrome, and the von Erichs were in the middle of the thing with the Freebirds, and so they brought in this barefooted cousin. That was built kind of like Carrie. Okay. And uh, so Lance somehow ended up in South Africa and was married to a girl over there. And so Lance and I worked on a couple of big shows together and stuff. And I always enjoyed working with Lance. You know, we had some good matches. Um, you know, I worked with uh, Mike Fox in Dallas, you know, on the indie scene. Mm-hmm. 
when they had the PCW group that was run out of Dallas back in like 2006 or seven. Okay. And I would have loved to have been able to have Mike in other places when I was younger. Yeah. In places to where we would have had better exposure and things because for some reason he and I just had amazing chemistry. Nice. And our matches and stuff just flowed so easy and it, we got so much heat from, you know, the crowd was always into everything that we did and it just, the chemistry was just amazing. When did you actually retire? When did you finally retire? About three years ago. Okay. And was it like a big retirement match? Did you have your like final no. last? Op- oh, no? <laughs> no, really. <laughs> you know, I was going over doing some stuff and, um, you know, I'd gone for the Tiger Steel gimmick. I was doing Colossus. I was doing a Gladiator gimmick in Dallas. Uh-huh. And um, Mexico contacted me that they were doing a Legends tour. Okay. So they wanted me to come back as Giant Warrior to work with Connect. Well, of course, you know, I didn't have any stuff left from the Giant Warrior days. Oh, yeah. So I kind of put everything together, you know, kind of blended Tiger Steel and Giant Warrior together and put, made that work. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I started doing Giant Warrior toward the end of my the last couple of years because people wanted me coming in doing the legend stuff in Mexico and uh, you know, when I gone to South Africa to do the bodyguarding work, I was wrestling out there, and of course, that's what everybody knew me as. Yeah. So, you know, I had done the giant warrior thing, and then I was work working in Belgium a little bit, and uh, I think my last match was actually in Germany, which I always enjoyed working in Germany. Mm-hmm. You know, it was another different, you know, it was a different type of environment, but I, I enjoyed working on the German scene. So, was and, it an injury that caused the retirement? Uh, yeah. Oh. Yeah, I gotten hurt, uh, actually bouncing in a club and stuff, I'd gotten hurt, and I just wasn't able to, to go, and then I had the neck reconstruction, and they told me, you know, anything physical and stuff is out of the way, you know, it, it can't be done if, you know, if you bounce in a club and somebody grabs your head wrong, you know, it could paralyze me. Oh, jeez. Um... You know, same thing and stuff in the ring. If somebody missed a spot, I missed a spot, landed too far back. You know, I could broke my neck permanently and been completely paralyzed, and it just wasn't worth it. Yeah. So, you know, last summer, um, group out of Dallas and stuff, I went into the Southern Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame. Right, yeah, I was, I was checking that out. And that was actually the the best way for me to end my career. Because, you know, my wife was laughing about the thing and saying the same. That's what she told me. <laughs> Is that had I gone out and had tried to have another match, and it would have been a bad match, I'd have wanted to have another one. Of course. To rectify it and, you know, be in a bigger venue or have a better opponent or whatever it was. And stuff. You know, there had been a reason why I would have wanted to have another one to end on a better note. And then she's like, Yes, but then if you would have had, she said, even if you and Mike would have worked and y'all had an amazing match, it was better than anything that you had with PCW because Mike and I even got match of the year one year with them. Oh, nice. Um, she said, then you would have sat back and said, well, you know, hey, I did this one. I can do another one. Right. You know, she said, you would have come up with a reason to continue, <laughs> to continue wrestling. It's in your blood. Says, so then doing the... For you getting into the Hall of Fame, 
She said that was the perfect way for you to end your career and walk away from it satisfied. That's good. Yeah, which, I mean, which it has been. I imagine it's it's just in you. It's hard not to be doing it. It is. I mean, and you know, really, I had done. You know, I had wrestled for more years of my life than I hadn't. Yeah. You know, I mean, I I was in. You know, I had wrestled for over twenty, just over twenty five years, almost twenty six. Crazy. When I quit. So, I mean, I had wrestled for half of my life. You know, so it was such a big part of my life. And, I mean, and everything really came second chair to wrestling. Yeah. You know, wives, girlfriends, kids, you know, everything. You know, I lived and breathed wrestling. And that was what I enjoyed doing. And, I mean, you know, for that 10 or 15 minutes up in the ring, you know, my body didn't hurt. You know, I could do whatever I wanted for those. And that was the only thing that was important with those 15 minutes in that ring. And, you know, then everything else and stuff kind of was built around it. It was the drug of choice. Yeah, it really was. I mean, I've always said that wrestling and stuff is one of the most addictive things you can ever do. Especially if you have some success at it and you get, you know, to the upper levels and stuff where you're main eventing shows and things like that. It's, it's a hell of a drug to have to try to kick the habit of. Yeah. What would you tell someone that tells you they want to become a wrestler? Don't. <laughs> Plain and simple? Plain and simple, don't. I mean, my son um, actually wanted, you know, talked to me about wanting to become a wrestler. And, you know, I think at the time he was like 18, years, 18 19 years old. But, you know, and I, I said, you don't want to do this. And, of course, Chris Youngblood, you know, from the the Youngblood family of Chris and Jay and Mark and yeah. their, dad, their dad, Ricky Romero. So Chris is from Amarillo as well, so we've known each other for years. And Chris had a training school, so we got my son up there one day. And he decided it wasn't as much fun as it looked like on TV. You know, he didn't really enjoy bumping, <laughs> taking clotheslines and chops and things like that. And I have to admit, we were probably a little snug to convince him and stuff. He didn't really want to do this. But, you know, there is no, there's no money in it anymore. Yeah, not unless you make it all the way, which is extremely I mean, unless rare. You're with w, unless you're with WWE or you're getting a good push with New Japan, because I know some guys that are doing okay with New Japan right now. Okay. Um, you know, I don't know what's going on with Jarrett's new promotion and stuff that he's running, but, you know, what the guys are making with them. I mean, I know some guys that are there. But, you know, really, unless you're with WWE and it, even then and stuff, if you're not in the middle to where you're safe, you know, you don't, the money is not any good. Yeah. I mean, I've gone, I've gone and done indie shows where promoters paid me more than he paid the rest of his card. Jeez. And I never felt like I was that expensive of a guy. I mean, I never worked for cheap, but I mean, I never was gouging anybody you know, like some of these guys coming straight off of television and stuff, you know, charge these indie guys two or $3,000 and stuff. Right. I wasn't doing that, but I mean, I've done shows, I've done several shows to where I've seen the the payout sheets and stuff to where I was making as much as almost the whole show got paid. Yeah, that's crazy. And there's just no money in it. I mean, when you've got guys that'll go out there and wrestle for five, 10, 20 bucks, wrestle for free, you know, how do you, it's, it's not a profession at that point stuff. It's a hobby. 
Right, they devalue everyone else's job by doing that. And yeah, I mean, when you've got all those guys that think guys like me can't go in and make a living. Right. Have you, because uh, I think Jarrett's new promotion is out of Vegas, right? Um, I think he goes out and I think he comes out here to do his TV tapings. Right, I don't know TV. what he's doing with his TV yet. Has he, have, do you know him? Like, are you, have you guys talked at all about doing something? Uh, yeah, I know Jeff from, ten, from, from Memphis and from Puerto Rico. And has he brought you in to consult or do anything? With no, that? no, no. He's. I haven't talked to Jeff in years since. Um, there was some little all shoot superstars of wrestling or something like that back in the early two thousands. Yeah, it was kind of traveling around and stuff. And they came to to England when I was out there, and I went with one of the English guys to the show and talked to some of the guys in the back and stuff. And I talked to Jeff for a little bit, but you know, I. Not really that close with Jeff. I've met him a couple of times. He's, you know, we rode together to a show in Puerto Rico because being the only American babyface in Puerto Rico, whenever they bring somebody in, they usually rode with me because, <laughs> you know, well, over there and stuff, they were very kayfabe and stuff about who rode with who to shows. Right. You okay. know, so Jeff rode with me, I think, to a couple of shows when they brought Jeff in. and But other than that, no, I haven't talked to him in several years, so. You know, but I do know some of the guys like PJ Black's on it, Lance Hoyt. You know, okay. some of those guys suffered doing all doing shows with him, and uh, I think they were just here this past weekend. I didn't go. I don't. Like I said, I, I've you know, I, I'll get guys and stuff like, "Hey, we're going. I'm going to be wrestling in town. Come watch the matches." And like, I've seen enough wrestling matches in 25 years. <laughs> I bet. Yeah, I really don't care to sit out and watch a show. Yeah. I may go say hello to some people, but I usually want to leave or something. That makes sense. You know, but halfway through, and I don't want you know, I don't want to mess anybody up while they should you know while they're trying to put matches and stuff together. And, you know, some promoters are really weird and stuff about guys that aren't on the card and stuff being in the back and yeah. And I've got no desire to be out with the fans watching it as a fan. I can't, I can't really watch wrestling as a fan anymore. Wow. I can go back and watch like some of the 70s and 80s stuff mm-hmm. and enjoy watching that. But I don't enjoy watching any of the newer stuff because, you know, I spend most of my time watching for mistakes. Right. You know, and, and catching the mistakes that the average person wouldn't. You know, so it, it kind of takes the, you know, I know too much about it to, to enjoy it anymore. That makes sense. Um, which which kind of leads us into what you're doing now, uh, totally opposite of wrestling, especially totally opposite of being a big heel wrestler. Now you're going around talking to kids, uh, motivational yeah. speaker kind of thing. Yeah, which I, I really enjoy and stuff. I mean, that was one of the hard things about me being a heel. And I was always, you know, always tried to be that tough heel. You know, so I didn't sign a lot of autographs and stuff as a heel. I didn't really talk to the fans very much. Um, you know, I, I didn't spend a lot of time with kids and stuff that I could have had I been a baby face. Right. And, I mean, really, at the end of the day, I, I really think I'm a pretty nice guy. And I <laughs> I enjoy I enjoy talking to, to people, especially kids. So the idea of getting into speaking... You know, I felt like I've had enough happen into my life that if I can help, you know, a couple of kids avoid some of the pitfalls I had in my life, then my time is well spent. 
you know, I, I really do enjoy talking to these kids because I feel like they've got so much negative influence, you know, out there for them. Yeah. That if I can provide 30, 45 minutes, an hour of positive influence for them and stuff, I'm cool with that. Yeah. What kind of messages do you normally talk to them about? Um, you know, I try to deal a lot of stuff with like peer pressure and the bullying message, teenage suicide, addictions, what I call removing labels okay. of, you know, trying to have more of a, a positive outlook on yourself and not listen to and not adhere to the labels other people try to put on you. Because really at the end of the day, the only person's opinion really matters is yours. True. You know, so, you know, I, I want these kids to realize and stuff just because some, you know, kid says they're stupid or even some teacher says they're stupid, you know, doesn't necessarily mean that that's true. Yeah. Did you, you know? get a lot of that growing up? I, I imagine you were a pretty big kid, even young. Yeah, I was, a, I was tall and skinny. So, I mean, I got the, the things were different stuff back in the 70s. Yeah. You know, I mean, I got teased and stuff for being tall and skinny. I mean, my dad, you know, gave me a haircut out in the garage and stuff that was virtually left me bald before bald was cool. <laughs> um, you know, so, I mean, I had kids make fun of me and stuff, call me bald-headed and, you know, being skinny and everything else. But, you know, it was most, most of it was good-natured. It wasn't really meant to be malicious. Yeah. It wasn't, you know, nobody was physically trying to do anything to me. Right. But it was so much different back then, too, because when you left school, it was over. You know, once you got home, whatever bullying that was going on or teasing or whatever at school didn't happen until you went back to school the next day. Yeah, it's true. Now and stuff with all the, the social media and and everything else that's that's going on, so the cyberbullying has become a big thing. So the... It's where you start running into finding these kids and stuff that are wanting to commit suicide because they just don't feel like there's any way out. You know, I'm getting bullied at school, then I'm getting cyberbullied when I get home, and it's just like, how do I get away from it? They need a break. Yeah, and, and they don't get it, so then they, they're just like, well, the only way I can do this stuff is just to commit suicide. And, and it's so sad stuff, and I mean, I don't want these kids feeling like this. You know, and the bullying thing and stuff has become an epidemic. Yeah. And I, it's really something that needs to be, you know, addressed. And I, I really hope through, like I said, through some of my experiences, having lived in foreign countries, you know, and learning a lot of, about other cultures and things that I have, you know, I really hope that I'm able to to touch base with these kids and try to help them overcome some of these things. Yeah. It, it makes me think of, uh, my friend Brad is a fairly known comedian. He's also a midget and his, right. his dad knowing that he was going to have problems growing up because his whole family is of normal size except for him and growing up, his dad would make fun of him in a lighthearted manner, but made fun of him so that when he went out to school and things, when the kids made fun of him, it wouldn't hurt so bad. Right. And just, you but, know. you know, the sad thing and stuff, what they're starting to find today is even with something like that, which was meant in the best possible way, mm -hmm. is they're starting to see now and stuff where the mind can do such crazy things. 
that even by getting that at home, that's how some of these kids start perceiving themselves to be. Wow. Instead of getting the positive reinforcement at home. You know, and I understand what he was trying to do. He was trying to toughen him up and everything for when kids did make fun of him at school. Right. But sometimes the stuff he can have this day and age, it's, it's, they're finding that it can have a reverse um, effect on kids because then they start listening. To, it's like the kids at school are saying this. My parents are saying this. So I must be this. That's true. I could see where that would be a problem. You know, and that's one of the things and stuff where I really try to work with with kids now because my message has kind of changed as I've developed things along the way. You know, I was really strong in the in the anti bullying. I still do that, mm-hmm. but mine and stuff is I really want people to have a better image of themselves. You know, to where they, you know, it's like I said, it's my removing labels speech is what I call it is because you know everybody wants to label people, right. And, you know, you get the mean girls at school. You know, girls are vicious when it comes to, like, the social media cyberbullying and everything. It's a much bigger thing with females than it is males. Especially to other girls, not even to boys. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And, I mean, they're all about trying to ruin a reputation or something. And it's so so scary how fast something like that can take legs of its own with people. Yeah. Because, you know, a girl can sit back and say, hey, I saw... Susie having sex with three guys and stuff at this party on Friday night and by Monday morning when she gets to school she's got the worst reputation in school and doesn't even know what hit her so what would you say to a girl or even a boy but a girl going through this type of thing you know one of the things that I always tell them and stuff is one is to the best thing is is communication if You've got to be able to talk to your parents and school administrators and stuff. Because, I mean, truthfully, bullying at the end of the day is a federal offense now. Really? In almost every state, there's federal laws. It's federal laws against it. I didn't realize that. And, but if nobody knows it's happening, nobody can help you stop it. True. So you've got to talk to somebody. You know, whether you, you're talking to your parents or you're talking to the principal, a counselor, a teacher, you know, somebody's got to know what's going on in order to help you with it. Yeah. You know, as, you know, as far as bullying incidents at schools, so a lot of these schools now are starting to develop anti-bullying policies to where they'll put uh, forums online to where kids can go in and fill out what the incident was and everything. And it can be submitted more anonymously than, than walking in watching the kids in school see so you walk into the counselor's office, the principal's office, and then suddenly somebody gets in trouble. Right, because then you're the narc. People don't know who it was that told on them. Yeah. Well, that's good. Um, there's a site called Sprigio, which I always tell kids about because it's an anonymous site that kids can go fill out a bullying incident report, and then the site will email the principal of the school. Oh, wow. So it's not coming directly from the kid. It's coming from, and it can be, you know, I can watch you being bullied and I can go fill the form out on your behalf. And that way the school knows about it and they know to be watching whoever this person is doing the bullying or watching for incidents and things like that to try to put a stop to it. Yeah, it's really good. It's I, I just found it right now. It's S-P-R-I-G-E-O.com. E-O, right. That's really awesome. Yeah, it's 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 really a good thing. And one of the, you know, the thing I always tell people and stuff is that 
I have an acronym and stuff of there's a bob involved with every every bullying situation. A bob? A bob. Because you have a bully, you have an observer, and then you have the bullied victim. They're showing us that the fifty percent of bullying situations will stop if somebody will intercede on behalf of the victim. And so many of these kids that watch bullying go on and do nothing about it. Right. They get their phones out and they'll video it and stuff, hoping to get the next viral video. Yeah, we see a lot of kid fights on YouTube. Yeah. because And so why, instead of taking a video of this thing, are you not stepping in and saying, hey, this isn't right, stop? Yeah. Because most bullies, I mean, like I said, 50% now they're showing, will stop if somebody from the outside intercedes. That doesn't take much at all, just to, hey, what are you no, doing? It's one person to step in. And I, I know it's tough because a lot of kids are afraid that if I step in on behalf of this victim, I'm going to be the next victim. Right. And you won't be cool. And you won't be cool. And, stuff. and that's you know, part of what I talk about and stuff in my labeling speech is that kids are wanting so bad to fit in. Everybody wants to belong. They want to be one of the cool kids. They want to fit into the school. Right. And... You know, so they allow things to happen around them that they wouldn't normally do, but because of the peer pressure of everybody else letting it happen, they don't step up and do anything. You know, so peer pressure is a tough thing. I mean, you know, and it, it's not something that just ends with school. I mean, peer pressure happens throughout your life at times if you really think about it. Oh, for sure. You know, that's how I got involved with cocaine and stuff when I was in South Africa. It wasn't because of the wrestling or anything else and stuff. It was because the guys that I was bouncing with were all doing it. And I had just moved to South Africa and was wanting to fit in into my new home. Right. And I'd never seen this before. And, I mean, we're all at this restaurant, and they invite me to come back to this back room and stuff. And the guy's bringing a plate. And next thing I know, he's chopping up lines of cocaine on a plate and hands me a, a note and say, here you go. It's your turn. <laughs> okay. And, you know, there's six or seven guys in there with us, so I didn't want to be the odd one out saying, hey, I don't do this stuff. So, you know, I did my first line of cocaine, and it was something that I kept doing for a couple of years till I stopped. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, the peer pressure thing and stuff doesn't just end. It's, it's you know, and wanting to fit in, you know, it happens when you go to college. And get a job you know, and everything else in life. Yeah. You know, everybody wants to fit in, and they do whatever it takes sometimes. Yeah, that's true. Um, can people contact you and if, if they need to talk to you about this sure. kind of stuff? Yeah, they can go through the website and uh, they can contact me at jeffbearden.com. Uh, my phone number and stuff to the office is there. So, I mean, you know, call if I don't answer the phone. The receptionist, you know, I've got a really good receptionist. They'll take a message. And I generally respond to all of my emails, to any of my messages on uh, through Facebook or my phone calls and stuff, and, and there's, you know, a lot of times the stuff that I'll talk with parents and with kids alike, you know, on what they can do about a certain situation. Yeah, and that's jeffbearden.com, also at JWB at large on Twitter and Facebook. It's the Get Back on Your Feet guy. That's how you contact them. Um, it's a really nice thing you're doing, especially taking phone calls from people. Yeah, because, I mean, I, I really want to be able to help with these situations and a lot of times, you know, when I go and do, um, you know, a news show or something, or, you know, I've been on a tele, you know, several different television shows talking about the bullying issues. Right. 
And, you know, these people are like, oh, well, my kid's going through that at school. What, you know, what can I do? And it's like, well, call me and I will, we'll talk about the different things you can do. You know, I feel like it's my way of giving back to life. You know, I've had a lot of situations. And I mean, truthfully, I probably shouldn't even be here. But I am. Just based on stabbings alone. Yeah, just based on stabbings and stuff. You know, I had a ruptured appendix that almost, I should have died of sepsis, but I didn't. I've had that. You know, I <laughs> was clinically dead at one point in my life and stuff for over a minute. Jeez. You know, so I mean, it's just my way of giving back to life. You know, of trying to be there for other people and help them through, you know, hard times. I mean, I'm now trying to put together workshops that I'm going to start doing for parents. So they know a little bit more of what's going on uh, in their lives for, you know, with the kids. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm also working on uh, some relationship stuff. I've, I also do some relationship counselings and and speeches on that as well. That's really nice work you're doing. And, and like I said before, it's jeffbearden.com, B-E-A-R-D-E-N, at J-W-B at large. And then on Facebook, the Get Back on Your Feet guy. Jeff, thanks for hanging out and, and spending a really long time uh, making this fanboy extremely happy. Oh, it's been fun. It's been a lot of fun for me, so thank you so much. I hope much. we can do it again someday. I would love to, and I'll be in Vegas, and we're going to have to hook up and, and hang out. Oh, sure, no problem. I'd love for you to meet my wife and everything. That'd be so much fun, so thank you very much. Yes, sir. So there you have it. That is my interview with Jeff Bearden. He is such a nice guy, a good guy. Give him back to all the people that gave to him and many more. And like he said, if you guys need anything, uh, look him up on the website, jeffbearden.com, B-E-A-R-D-E-N, jeffbearden.com. You can also get him on Facebook as the Get Back On Your Feet guy and on Twitter at JWB at large. Man, if you guys could have seen the look on my face throughout that interview as a uh, wrestling fan from way back when, just a wee little lad. It was so much fun getting to talk to Jeff about all the the old school wrestlers back when wrestling was good and coming up in the business road stories i love that stuff and it was so fun to actually be a part of one of those conversations so i hope uh, any of you wrestling fans out there got a kick out of it i hope you non-wrestling fans out there got something out of it as well let me know if you guys enjoyed that i just had a big goofy smile on my face the entire time i realized my my responses and answers were very one word childish Uh, I may have been a little caught up in the conversation. Anyways, thanks again to Jeff. Please, please, please check him out. And like I said before, if you're in Vegas on January 2nd, go check him out at the Unstuck 2016 Happiness Conference at the Orleans Casino. He is one of the keynote speakers. Hit him up on one of his social medias. Let him know that you enjoyed the show or find the show on the social medias and then let me know you enjoyed the show. Of course, you can get us at... I want to know show.com. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash I want to know show on Twitter at I want to know show. And of course you can email the show. I want to know pod at gmail.com. Thanks again to Jeff. Thanks again to you guys for listening. Hope your holidays are a good one. And on that note, good night, everybody. Good night, everybody.